Welcome to this episode. Uh, I have with me Dr. Eric Pepper. He's an internationally known expert on holistic health, stress management, workplace health, and biofeedback. Since 1976, he has taught at the San Francisco State University, where he has been instrumental in establishing the Institute of Holistic Health Studies, the first holistic health program at a public university in the United States. He is the president of the Biofeedback Foundation of Europe, and in 2013, he received the Biofeedback Distinguished Scientist Award in recognition of outstanding career and scientific contributions from the Association of Applied Psychophysiology. He lectures and teaches frequently all over the world and runs a biofeedback practice at Biofeedback Health in Berkeley, California. He is the co-author of the Amazon bestseller, Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping, and Pragmatic Ergonomics, and has been featured in GQ Magazine, Glamour, Men's Health, and San Francisco Chronicle, Shape, and Women's Health. Among his many achievements, he is also the State of California Governor's Employee Safety Award in 2004 for his contributions to improving workplace health for computer users. I have with me up the producer of our show, Aditi Bhatt. My name is Vivek Narayan. A fun fact about Dr. Pepper, he was the sports psychologist for the U.S. Olympics uh, gymnastic team uh, for four years. Dr. Pepper, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Vivek you know, and for the opportunity to share some information. Just as a uh, correction, technically it was the U.S. Rhythmic Gymnastics team for which we were the behavioral scientists to really apply techniques to optimize performance and how to do your best. And I think those same approaches can apply equally at the work site and for people who have muscle or muscle dysfunction. Brilliant. Uh, so, Dr. Weber, um you're a very, very, uh, uh, you're one of the guests that we've had that has, a, I, 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 the word eclectic is often used, but I think it's very suited over here. Um, but would you mind describing to our audiences, you know, your particular journey, how you got uh, to do what you're doing? You know, we have an interest in biofeedback over here, but then there's, uh, uh, Clearly, uh, an interest in communication and, and writing and, uh, of course, uh, in ergonomics. How did you get to, to be where you are right now? Probably out of failure. <laughs> may, but really, pragmatically, I think many of the things when I've worked with students or clients, then you think you have a, a model and then you apply it and it often works and sometimes doesn't work. And then hopefully, if you're open and explore other techniques or you listen to them, you may integrate those. So that is probably the piece. And let me give us an example for the use of people at the work site. For, you know, many years ago, about, about 1995 or whatever time it was, uh, a therapist asked me to work with their client who had severe neck and shoulder pain. And at that time, that was called repetitive strain injury. That was the injuries people got at the computer. The data was, is clear. It's not the number of repetitions. It's really how you're using yourself. But at that point, that wasn't always clear. And he asked me to work with this person. And what was interesting, this person could no longer work. He was in workers' comp. And he had this severe discomfort and pain. 
And he already had seen an ergonomist. And that was, I think, the beginning of this concept. So the ergonomist had gone to his workshop, had arranged the, com- the monitor or the computer at that time in front of him appropriately, got him the perfect chair, you know, did all that stuff. So the person ideally should sit correctly. And yet he still kept having more and more pain and could not work. And here, I think, is the distinction because it isn't just how you're sitting. If you have a chair that is appropriate for you and correct, it gives you the opportunity to sit correctly. But it doesn't mean you do. And so in a way, when we then monitor his body, his physiology, and that's where biofeedback, that is the use of electronic instrumentation to monitor what happens inside the body, when we use that, then we could see that you know, when he was bringing his hands to the keyboard, his shoulders went up, which is happens to most people. You measure the anterior deltoid, it tightened. The key is he was totally unaware. And that is mm-hmm. very common. So all of a sudden you realize the interaction between the ergonomics and how the person is actually performing and using themselves. So if I sit at the keyboard and my shoulders are always up the whole time, and I'm unaware of that. And the only thing I notice is by the end of the day, I've, I slowly over time get achiness and exhaustion, et cetera. So that was the beginning specifically on the journey of looking at tech stress, how you mm-hmm, physically mm-hmm. monitor. And in that process, ergonomics is important because if you go to a work site, you know, you, Sometimes there's not money to, to change the screen or a chair. So how do you apply other techniques? If you're asking, how can you relax? Well, at work, you don't want to relax. No boss, in my experience, or industry is going to pay you to relax. They would like more productivity. And so the yeah. question is, how can you be more productive? And the question in that is that we underestimate that if we keep going push, 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 and we have work stress or self-stress in performance, then I get totally exhausted. Then I get home. I can't sleep. That affects me again. And so- Makes sense. Dr. Pepper, before we continue on this, uh, for our listeners, the insight, so you mentioned in this particular uh, example, uh, the the individual had already gone to an uh, ergonomist. However, there was an insight that, you know, maybe we should be using biofeedback. What was, you know, was, what was the insight over there? Was this just a, 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 a wild hypothesis? Clearly not, right? It was an informed hypothesis. So it was truly an informed hypothesis because when I work with clients or with students or in research, we have, mo- we have demonstrated clearly that people are usually unaware that they may tighten inappropriate muscles while they're doing a task. It's like if you mm-hmm. sit here, you can make a tight fist. If I ask you that instruction, really tight. Some people just tighten their fist and other people tighten and they go like this. Right. But they're not aware they're tightening their face or their shoulder. So that process, that observation was really clear. And for that, muscle biofeedback is probably one of the superb tools for it mm-hmm. because it may, you can really demonstrate to people that when they're sitting, and I, if they, if you ask them, for example, raise your shoulder, I'm using the shoulders. It can be any muscle mm-hmm. group. Raise mm-hmm. it till you are aware of the tension. Let's say you raise it this much. Okay. Now I'm aware of the tension. I can put the sensors on there, which I did before. And I can say, ah, that's now 20 microvolts. That's a measure of tension. Yeah. 
What is so interesting, that means that you have tension, but only when it's at 20 microvolts, are you aware of it? That's late. Maybe I could become aware of five microvolts. And when you train people to do that, you can teach them to increase their own awareness and sensitivity. And when they do that, or then their health seems to improve. Or for many patients, what you see, or clients, that when they have achiness in muscles or they have this muscle dysfunction, that if you ask them to tighten a muscle, I use my shoulder again, and now mm -hmm. let go, ideally what you should see is almost a square wave. You tighten, muscle activity occurs, then oh, they totally relax. Because mm -hmm. when muscles are relaxed, there should be zero activity. Except for many people, when they let go, they think it is relaxed. And there's still a residual low level of tension. Mm -hmm. And they have a low level of tension chronically. That is really the big issue. Or another way to think about this is if I'm doing a movement and I tighten the agonist, the antagonist, or all the muscles around it, I'm applying mm -hmm. more forces around the joint, which may not be necessary. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it can be I, much more. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You know, it's even more complex because we are even aware that even our breathing changes. When I sit mm -hmm. at the computer, without knowing, I start breathing more shallowly, quicker. And that may, again, affect our physiology. So, and finally, in this concept, your thoughts change your physiology. Your emotions change your physiology, which we're not often aware. Yes, when we're angry, we may feel tight. Or when we are depressed, we may feel collapsed. However, that's usually an awareness later, not at that time, because we are captured by the emotion. Or we don't even know that when mm -hmm. I think back of my boss, or I anticipate my partner, or whatever it is, my body is reacting. And that, you know, that can be positive, or without knowing if it's more like a worry or a concern, it, the brain is active, that activates the body. And now we, we see the end result. We may not be able to sleep, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. our body stays tight. The biofeedback can show you how thoughts affect body. It may show you techniques that, ah, when you do the following approach, the muscles can relax, your breathing can change. Yep. That makes sense. And I think you've laid the foundation here for, you know, some of the work and obviously this, the, the book that you've written uh, about tech stress. Um, in our previous conversation, uh, you know, you alluded to the fact that we have this, and I'm just going to call it a caveman response uh, for, yes. uh, you know, the lack of a better word. But, you know, we do have this flight or fight uh, response. Uh, describe to us uh, and to the audience, you know, what does tech stress mean and and why are we experiencing stress related to technology? Tech stress has, is a very broad concept in a way. You know, it's really after use technology or ongoing technology that often at the end of the day, you're more exhausted. Your eyes, when you leave your screen, you all of a sudden, you notice the world is a little more fuzzy at the distance. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if, you're, if you're younger and you are what I would say a social media native, or a cell phone mm -hmm. native. What I mean by that is you were brought up already with the cell phone in your crib by humor in a certain way. Then you're captured by that. And that also affects our emotional state. What we see now, in fact, 
with people who are age 18 to 24, that we see a significant increase in, me in mental illness, you could say, or, or psychological distress. That includes mm -hmm. even suicide rates, depression, anxiety. And most people are saying this, ah, that was due to the pandemic because we were all sort of more socially isolated. Yet the data is really clear. If you go all the way back to 2008 till mm -hmm. 2020, then what you see is that these symptoms, the report of people going to the emergency department with these mental, emotional symptoms has radically increased. It was going up before. So it isn't the pandemic. The theme was already there. And why? Because we are captured by the computer. Think of so many of the young boys which I think is really very difficult, who are now essentially addicted to computer games. And what they mm -hmm. do is they play and play and they lack the social connection. They almost identify more with their avatar or the persona they have created. And it changes your brain, it changes your eyes and your social connectiveness. Uh, for the more adult workers, what they experience in terms of tech stress, I would say is the result of sitting disease. <laughs> That namely we sit all the time, you know, uh, we get neck and shoulder, we get eye, as people sometimes call, I have eye neck, you know, and I get back and shoulder pain. And at the end of the day, I'm more exhausted. I think that's the quickest way you can think about. It. So it depends for whom it is. For younger people, you see even more emotional problems mm -hmm. or or, you know, psych almost psychiatric problems, social isolation, much or less forming connections with other people, higher incidence of the significant increase in severe depression, high increase in anxiety. For the adult population or older people, it tends to be also more physical symptoms as well. And they're major. And then you talk about what people have talked about is called Zoom fatigue, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then just go back, think of your eyes. You know, you get fuzzy eyes. It is interesting. Young children during the pandemic became much more myopic than ever before. That means mm -hmm, nearsighted. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because we're now living out of harmony, in a sense, to our evolutionary origins and background. If you think of it, go and many of the tech stress issues are come back to that. So let me explain that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So think back. No, I can't think back. I'm not, I wasn't there, but 20,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, you know, you were basically walking along the savannah in the woods or whatever. And in that, you always alternated in movement and sitting down. Sometimes you ran, sometimes you rested, but it wasn't a static state. That's one. You alternated movement and activity. Two, in terms of vision, you had to be aware of your periphery because there could be a tiger on the side there. And you better be aware because if you were unaware, the tiger, you would become the lunch for the tiger mm -hmm. in that sense. So you, you didn't know you were aware, but your body was wired. So you, we are, remember, we are prey. If you think about our physiology, I know it looks like we're the king of the worlds. Biologically, from an evolutionary perspective, king or queens, I guess, of the world. But biologically, we were really wired. We are wired as prey. You know, we mm -hmm. react quickly. We are fearful. We get anxious. We react. The only two animals that 
don't do not give that fight flight response the same way is is the grizzly bear or the polar bear they are the two you know top of the chain but for human what beings what we would call almost apex predators right yes and we are not really we are not even close to an apex predator we may act that way now with our guns or other weapons and so we are continually reacting so when the screen occurs i automatically without any thinking look at the screen i didn't know i did that but that means mm-hmm. my eyes have to converge at this distance and now i stay that way that means i develop visual stress i tend to stiffen my neck often without knowing because i want to be mm-hmm. careful to really see it all those symptoms occur and i do this not just for one minute not just for five minutes i may do this the whole day long and then i get a half an hour break for lunch or whatever mm-hmm. and then i have in addition the psychological stress of my supervisor my work my concern so i have two factors that trigger that fight flight response one mm-hmm. is almost the biological stimuli that captures my attention to the screen two the self induced ones i need to finish this workload mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that then gives us a kind of it triggers for many people a fight flight response so let me explain the harm of that mm-hmm. yeah or the benefits one it's great to give that i highly recommend it if i walk across the street and all of a sudden a car you know goes rapidly approaching rapidly thank you for the right words and i just quickly jump back i didn't think about doing that i just did it automatically my system got activated for survival at that moment of doing that my body cannibalizes itself basically think about that it it shifts the blood flow it does all the activities so i can survive mhm i can avoid that danger you know and in that momentary act and if i do this many times what does it do well when i give that fight flight response i'm ready to f- to flee or fight at that moment my body really withdraws digestive processes it slows that down and stops it it stops essentially regenerating itself and healing i'm being so simplistic but realistically it is that way and the way you could say it is when you're faced when you're faced by a tiger and a car could be the tiger my screen can be the tiger my thoughts of my boss can be that tiger that evoked mm-hmm. they evoked that response at that moment my body is activated for fight flight and i do not restore myself because why should i digest food why should i heal myself when i'm becoming the lunch for the tiger the only right. time i can really heal not the only time but a fact a significant factor is once i feel safe and that would happen right after the tiger right. i run away i get to a place of safety ah i can relax so i think what you're saying is uh, i think what you're saying is that we've evolved for you know maybe 5 to 10% i'm making this up right now 5 to 10% flight of uh a uh, fight or flight response but the rest of the time we're we're not supposed to be in that state and you know whether it comes to digesting food or um rest and recuperation uh, i'm going to add repair in there yes. um you know evolutionary most of the time we're supposed to be not in this flight or fight response however um 
by virtue of technology and the fact that somehow we have now learned to tap into how to grab our attention, which is piggybacking on this uh, flight or fight response, we are now, instead of, again, 5-10% or whatever it had been 20,000 years ago, we're now spending 50-60% of our waking lives in this state. I think that's basically what you're saying, right? Yes. And in a, not a very simplistic way, think of it. We're now sitting on a chair the whole time, most people, mm -hmm. watching mm -hmm. a screen. Well, when I sit, I'm the get compressive forces in my spine. I don't do movements. The blood flow decreases through my legs, or I may get even swelling legs. Sometimes as people get older, I keep holding tension. In earlier times, I would sit for a while, absolutely on a rock. And then I would mm -hmm. walk again, but now mm -hmm. we stay seated all the time. And that is the big problem. So one of the quick ways, and you know, if I can just interrupt my workload and mm -hmm. do some movements every so often, I do so much better. And there's another reason for that. If I'm sitting, I tend to be in a static muscle tension place. My legs may not move. My shoulders may not move. I'm just sitting there. And then the tension keeps building up without knowing. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, I would just do some movements, then other muscles get activated and the ones that were held statically tense may relax. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the explanations why typists historically, remember, you know, before the computer, people were typing. I'm still in that generation where I learned how to type. You know, on a typewriter. Um, I, I had a young, I had a, as a young person, I, I had a typewriter as well. In fact, one of my first submissions was uh, in a typewriter, but then the next, next grade, it was on like an old school uh, IBM XT. So, yeah. Yes. And so now think of the evolution of the typewriter. Here I'm typing. And when I'm typing, I'm doing the same thing like on a keyboard. There's not much difference. However, at the end of every sentence, I have to take my hand off the keyboard and I have to hit the return. Now mm -hmm. then, so that's another movement. Later on with the IBM Selectric, I could just use my pinky to hit the return. Mm -hmm. and the key. Mm -hmm. However, by the end of the page, I had to totally change my body position. I had to stand, I had to move forward, rotate the paper. Notice all these muscles are now different. And I never had to think about, it. then I had to stand up because I had to file that paper. Mm -hmm. And now all that we want to do is we want to sit in front of our computer, ideally do everything electronically, or if we still have a printer, the printer ideally should be right next to us so we don't even have to move. Mm -hmm. And that's also an evolutionary, you know, I would say a trap because by definition we are wired, I think, to, to rest and do nothing. Yeah. Because we want to conserve calories in a, in a, in a world where probably weren't enough calories for survival. And so mm -hmm. when I do, when I do movement, that's a cost. So if I can just rest, it's easier. So it's easy for the, for us to just want to stay seated. You know, and once, and everybody who, I think almost everybody has that experience. If you're watching, you know, streaming videos or television, it makes a difference. Once you sit, it's very much more challenging to get up and do something. You automatically right, right. see the next sequence. And so I call these are really evolutionary traps because mm -hmm. our behavior, which allowed us to survive for many thousands of generations, 
productively. Now it's it, now working against us, basically. Correct. You just said it perfectly. And so we yeah. have to use our intellect or government regulations, which are not done in the United States, to, to provide guidelines that that is not done. I'm very concerned yeah. about children that way, because if I look at young children, especially in the United States and around the world, historically, a young child with their caretaker, the caretaker would be to a baby, it would be cooing to the baby and responding back and forth. And the baby thereby, it gives a response. It tries mm -hmm. to activate the caretaker and is developing a kind of autonomy and a way to relate. Now what happens so often that I see, I see the parent or the caretaker on their cell phone, texting or reading, and the baby is desperately trying to get attention. Mm -hmm. And now the baby learns nothing works. And I think we're developing a kind of culture of hopelessness in young children that way. You want to really develop an empowerment. In, and so as, I as you're describing this, um, sorry to interrupt, as you're describing this, um, it, you know, it occurred to me, and this is just loud thinking over here. Um, you know, the, the bond between the dyad, the mother child yes. dyad. I mean, uh, one of the hormones is oxytocin. That is, that is absolutely crucial for that. And I'm wondering, um, you know, because of this detachment, um, you know, uh, obviously the uh, oxytocin uh, uh, access or the levels won't be appropriate where they should be. And I'm wondering if that actually has a developmental effect on uh, infants or on children and things like that. But that's just, you know, loud thinking. No, it's a great question. And if it's a research question I don't know the answer to. But I think you just identified a very good research project by looking at children, infants, whose mothers are really doing that kind of bonding versus mm -hmm. mothers or caretakers who basically hand the, the child the cell phone or the tablet as the entertainer, which is yeah. a totally different process. And I am totally persuaded without good evidence, by the way, <laughs> uh, that it makes a major effect. There's a great old video. And I, if people want to understand that process called still face, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a research study done at Boston University. Uh, in which they take a mother and the, the mother holds their baby. And then you know, the mother, the baby is coo cooing back and forth. They're really communicating. And then the, the, the mother is instructed to, to have a flat face. Mm -hmm. And you just see the baby getting more and more desperate in a way, getting attention. Yeah. Really, are we now doing this almost everywhere? I mean, I go to the parks. I see the little child getting aroused or withdrawn and depressed. Because the caretaker is just looking at, is just looking at their screen. So that is where it starts very early. Then a bit later, in the first few years of life, we quickly give the child the screen for entertainment. And now we're training the attentional state to be different. Because mm -hmm. what is, what made you successful? I'm sure. I'm guessing <laughs> to be successful at work is you have learned to direct your own attention. Even if you're, mm -hmm. you didn't quite like it, when however difficult it was, you could sort of, I hate to say, almost force your attention to stay present in the text. Mm -hmm. You could make a long attentional span. The attention span in the last 15 years has shifted from 150 seconds to 50 seconds or 44 seconds. 
And, and part of it, because it's, a, we're asking attention is a self-directed process. And what does the screen and computer do? Especially computer games, it activates you. So you don't have yep. to attend. It triggers the attentive process, which is a totally different process. Yeah. And I'm concerned about that for the future, for our students and our, you know, our culture, literally. And it's very interesting that China has just proposed new guidelines. I don't know if you are familiar. And I don't happen to like governmental policies this way. Well, I, I think, think I think the best way to describe it is uh, draconian, perhaps, right? Yes. Draconian ones, but there is a piece of truth to it, I think. And they are now yeah. saying that people under 18 cannot watch any digital displays, basically, between the, eight, the time of 10 o'clock at night till six in the morning or eight in the morning. And they can only, and under 18 cannot spend more than two hours, I think, a day or less, two hours a day on any cell phone or digital device. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's draconian. But I think for developmental processes and for children, I think there, there's something correct in it because we cannot ask the person to have voluntary control. Because when you yeah. are activating these almost primitive survival mechanisms, which you do when you, if I give a class, at that moment you orient to the loud noise. And if you now mm -hmm. do this on the screen and with all the seductiveness of the appropriate feedback mechanisms, it's almost impossible to use self-control. Yeah. I think you know, for my generation, the equivalent of that would have been, you know, um, growing up, uh, you, uh, some of my uh, friends, their parents would have prevent, you know, they didn't have a TV at home, right? Um, and I remember actually, uh, even in our house in India, uh, and I went to boarding school and then, uh, you know, for summer vacations, I would come and um, my grandparents were like, uh, okay, you know, they'd move the television from the living room and they'd just have it placed in the basement because, you know, the kids had to prepare for the exams. And so they didn't want to get distracted and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but sort of switching gears, there's a lot to unwrap over here. And I want to make sure that we have enough time to address uh, the presentation that you're going to be giving at the conference. But I think if and perhaps I'm reading into the tea leaves a little bit over here, but I think what you're describing is, um, you know, generationally, we have a generation of individuals now, um, let's call them digital natives, or even perhaps using a stronger word over here, uh, social media natives, right? They're social media um, natives. Uh, they've been exposed to a, a certain type of technology. They're living with, and they have uh, grown up with, you know, let's call it chronic tech stress. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that has had an impact on the way they perceive information and the way they are perceiving um, uh, stimuli, both digital and non-digital. Right. And so there's an. Uh, would it be fair to say that because of this particular exposure, this specific generation that we're referring to now just has a preponderance for certain mental health concerns and issues, which we haven't seen uh, previously from a quanta perspective, right? So perhaps it was two to three percent were in, uh, you know, either depressed or suicidal or those sorts of things. But now I think the percentages are rising. And I believe we have now enough evidence to suggest that it is actually 
the way we have been exposed to technology and the fact that we're growing up with this type of technology. Is that a fair statement or do we, is I, that no, too I think much? The, no, I think the Evans is quite correct that at least if you look at all the data, you see a continual increase in anxiety, severe depression, suicides among young people, sense of loneliness or isolation. You have many children who don't want to, who don't want to go to school. And it's mm-hmm. even with my students who are at San Francisco State, when we offer classes, the same class in person or online, the online class fills first and has a waiting mm-hmm. list and the in-person class does not. It's shocking, not shocking, but in a way you're, lo- because the challenge of, to me, it is a, a real challenge for our culture because when you go to school, you mix with other people, you get other perspectives. Online, I can keep living in my own little social bubble. And some of that social bubble equally, I can be trolled and horrible things can happen. Uh, but without those pieces, I, I don't get that same exposure. And mm-hmm. I see the data to me is clear that excessive media use, as we are now doing that, what it hinders is that sense of creativity and or even problem solving you have to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, historically, you would be going outside, you would be playing with your friends, you would get an argument, but then you have to resolve it. Now you don't have, mm-hmm. have to resolve it. You know, you can just, you know, close, shut off the connection, period. That doesn't mean that social media, that digital devices aren't useful. They're remarkably great, you know. It is the appropriate use of it. And I think we have forgotten that we may need to set some boundaries and the boundaries mm-hmm. we cannot demand the child, the young person totally. Now we are, see my, my hair is gray by definition, you see, uh, that we cannot demand the child to have that control. In the same way, I look at it in terms of foods. You know, we have a sweet tooth in our mouth and we, we want to mm-hmm. have sugar. Sweetness and salt, you know, and what happens if you have a young child and you give them the option of foods, they'll gravitate toward the sweet, Mm -hmm. sweet foods. And that is the whole drive of our super ultra processed foods. Now, is the child responsible for that when they they, want to buy it and eat that, which would be harmful for them over the long term if increasing diabetes rates, et cetera? Or is it Mm -hmm. that our that our culture has to have responsibilities. And I see at least that this needs to be done from both sides. And for parents right now, I think yeah. they're really, they're, they're stuck almost in the middle that even if good intent, they may want yeah. to set boundaries, but then the child will go next door. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, uh, if it takes a village to raise a child, then I'd certainly yes. I think that principle is applicable to uh, other forms of, um, and, and, and in this particular case, you know, it seems to me that the evidence is suggesting that overexposure is harmful. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would say we're going to see we're going to see an, another epidemic. And that is an epidemic. Probably I would hypothesize of earlier senility or dementia. And this comes from the Swedish studies many mm-hmm. years ago of physical fitness. So they looked at soldiers. I mean, when the, the Swedes still had the draft. All the phys- all, people all got physically, you know, tested for strength and, and fitness. They all ended a draft 
And now they could follow them for 30 years or something like this. And mm-hmm. recently people looked at a, a group like this from 30 or 40 years ago, and they looked at the difference in fitness. And they mm-hmm. found that the people who were least fit at age 18 mm-hmm. were the ones who had the highest rates of dementia at age 50 and 60 and 70, which fits the data. And now we're developing a population of people who were excluding a few who do athletics, <laughs> mm-hmm. who are basically unbelievably physically unfit as a general so rule. So is, is, is this uh, epidemiological data or is this deterministic? So I'm, I, I think the, I mean, the link between, say, uh, blood supply to the brain, yes. um, there, is a, there is a link between dementia and the lack of blood supply to the brain. Is the link or exercise related to blood circulation to the brain or is it something or do we not know as yet? Like, what is the, the I don't think, I mean, I don't think the answer is known. This is purely a correlational study, obviously, where you okay. have all the soldiers, you look at their physical fitness, and then you correlate that to the occurrence of dementia later. I think it fits okay. all the research data that when you do physical activity, you get more neural growth or neural connections. So that seems mm-hmm. to support this kind of hypothesis. Uh, and I would just say the data is clear. People are more anxious, more depressed, more suicidal. You know, why should a child be suicidal? I mean, you know, it's hard to believe. Yeah, yeah. And I think to your point, uh, you know, it's obviously a systems uh, type of determinism. So it's probably not just one. It's probably several no. factors. That, yeah. Yes. But now going back, if I think about it, what, it, what is for the presentation at the conference, we'll be looking mm-hmm. really much more at tech stress. We'll review a few of the data points which we have talked about, and then how can biofeedback or tools be used for muscular pain? What are the causes of some of those in terms of physiological recording and what you can do? To me, that is the important part because we can identify possibly you know, what people are are doing at the computer, but the critical part to me for clinicians is how can you monitor them and what mm-hmm. can you do for interventions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, would it be fair to say that, you know, um, for uh, individuals, uh, companies, representatives of companies who are looking to have a productive uh, workforce and the word productive I'm using intentionally over here because it's not just busy work, but it's actually good work, you know, perhaps, yes. right? Um, so if we want our employees to be as productive as possible, uh, uh, health is a major consideration. Um, technology is now a, a competitive advantage. Being familiar with technology is a competitive advantage. And so I think, would it be fair to say, if we need to develop this balance and be as productive as possible, then we should be attending your um, workshop. Is is that is that's- that fair? I think that's a very nice way in this workshop. I think we'll show a few tools people can use that, you know, or talk about, and that is the use of muscle biofeedback just to, to use awareness. And it can be done with a clinician or not. Then we'll, you, mm-hmm. we'll talk. I'll include a little piece on posture because we have mm-hmm. totally forgotten that go back to the very old pictures of people pre industrial times almost, you know, they would carry this basket on their head. They would be really tall yeah. and straight, powerful. Mm-hmm. And now we are slouching. And in fact, you look at athletes who are now in college, their spines are more curved now than they were 20 years ago already. And that's, you know, you can call that the, the cell phone look that impacts emotions, 
it impacts our physical health. So are there ways you can become aware when you slouch? Because going all the way back again, when we get involved in a task, we're totally almost unaware of what our bodies are doing, which is good because we want to do the mm-hmm. task. However, you want to be reminded to say, oops, I am just slouching. What was that? And for this, you can, there are some reasonably economic biofeedback device that can be used. Our breathing pattern changes. And again, there are ways by which one can use feedback to monitor and display it. Those are the economic ones. Muscle feedback mm-hmm. devices are more expensive, but for any clinician or anybody working with people who have muscle pain, I cannot conceive or not using, not monitoring the muscles of the person because the person is unaware. And when you see this all of a sudden on this graph, oh, it's up and I didn't even feel it. That makes it believable. And then for a corporate world, the data is clear. You know, that if you don't have aches and pains, you're not exhausted, exhausted at the end of the day, you can be more productive. And the final piece, which is beyond biofeedback, that's how we started at the beginning almost, we are a system. If mm-hmm. the atmosphere between supervisor and, co- and employees is positive, mm-hmm. you have productive employees. If the atmosphere is difficult, people have more sickness and people want to leave. And so it's, we are social beings, even at the corporate level. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, I think it, it, it's a myth. Uh, there is a, this requirement that, oh, when we go to work, we have our work face on and suddenly we forget that we're not human and we're not social. I mean, that's just silly. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, and I know in our previous conversations, you've touched upon the, the sort of the, the mind body uh, dyad. Mm-hmm. I like I like the word dyad over here, and I think you're kind of alluding to that uh, uh, as well. Um, yeah. Very quickly, I, we are sort of running out of time, but I, I I always want to ask this question from our guests, um, which is, you know, two years, five years from now, you know, where do you see this uh, future of this space? Uh, if you were a, a magician, or if you could make things happen, what is it that you'd want us to to do? Uh, you know. Uh, two years, five years from now, what would you want to happen? I would see that all that, that the focus in healthcare is education, that all young children at school would be exposed to awareness training of their muscle tension and posture they could carry with them for fun and do that. So that's one. And then two, that we are slowly redeveloping communities to support those processes for health. And, and, and the final piece is we are not just muscles. We are, we are a large system that includes your diet. It means taking breaks at work time. It means social support. And that's what I would really want to push for. And that families really remember and learn that there's a time to connect. So that means that when you have breakfast, you all are there for breakfast. Mm-hmm. You have dinner, mm-hmm. you're all are there for dinner and your cell phone is put to the side in the front room because the cell phone can be very useful. You know, there's nothing better at times to get information and stuff like that. So I'm not against it. It is at the appropriate usage. And But parents need to role model that. Children are great imitators and they do it even better than the parents. <laughs> um. Dr. Pepper, with that note, um, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, 
looking forward to your workshop uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to share some information. Thanks. I look forward to, to meeting you again. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Yeah.